0: Welcome to School of Movies. Once upon a time. In Hollywood. Just, just look, just, just, just put them in the wardrobe, alright? What's it going to hurt? Then if you need them, you got them, alright? <laughs> then I got to have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant. And man, she's a bitch. I just don't like, please. Like, look, Randy, I'm asking you to. If the, the answer is no, the the answer is no. Not not no with excuses.
1: I got a four man team here, Rick. If I need more than that. I got to get it approved. You know, I I, I got to look after my. Hey, 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 and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that's not the case, and you know it. He he's a great match for. Yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. man. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Th- throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a. The... Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just happy for the opportunity.
0: This episode began life just as a quick review that we recorded uh, as soon as we got back from the cinema, but we went deep, and it kind of blossomed from there, and we've added to it, and it is not our normal show. We don't so much talk about the film as the cultural implications of the film. That's our focus point this week. So... We've got to go full spoilers on this one, because it's a huge film, and there's no point just talking about it on a superficial level. We've got a lot to say about it on a non-superficial level. Uh, you folks at home will have already decided whether you're going to go and see it or not, and if you are going to see it, then you obviously won't want to uh, hear anything about it first, because the part of Tarantino's charm is his ability to surprise you. We're going to assume that everyone listening now has seen the film, Yeah. Because yeah. I don't want to have to explain this thing. It's two hours, 46 minutes long. It's so long. It's so, so long, folks, My isn't it? My
2: ass fell asleep.
0: My ass <laughs> fell asleep and woke up again. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the few films I've actually gotten jet lag from watching. Now, I've already been challenged on this matter. Quentin Tarantino is famed, renowned for making films that are, probably by most accounts, too long. But those films of his that I love, Django Unchained, Kill Bill, Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction absolutely riveting, and they just fly by. This is the theory of relativity writ large. It's set during 1969. A Hollywood actor, Rick Dalton, a former star of the 1950s western television series Bounty Law, laments to his best friend and former stunt devil Cliff Booth that his career is over. The rest of the film follows Rick Dalton bumming around trying to get jobs, taking big parts in TV, getting work on a western, getting work in Italy, and having a repeated compound nervous breakdown, which goes untreated living in the Hollywood Hills next to Sharon Tate, a woman famously about to be murdered by the Manson family. Straight out of the gate, this is a lot less violent than most Tarantino films. All the violence is saved for one portion at the end, which is absolutely sickening. It's also the whitest Tarantino film since Reservoir Dogs. I think around 20 minutes in, maybe earlier than that, I started to think, fuck, this is, this is extras. This is Ricky Gervais's extras. It was actually, it was a bit later than that. It was after the Bruce Lee fight or around about that time. It was about the time he was having that conversation with a little girl who was remarkably serious about her craft. That seemed weirdly anecdotal, but at the same time, a somewhat absurd situation. I think that bit, followed by the scene where he throws her to the ground while they're filming and uh, she's really appreciative of his uh, performance there, was my favourite in the film. There was plenty about his misgivings about himself, but this was some of the only positive movement towards becoming a better actor, a better person, and addressing his anxieties, perhaps. But then they dropped it. And by the end of the movie, he's pretty much just Cliff's baggage. And uh, I was thinking, so this is just being on set with people who... ...act as themselves, even though obviously this wasn't Bruce Lee acting as himself... ...but it was a, a, a fictionalised, heightened, although on the flip side of that... ...more realistic version of Bruce Lee uh, being an asshole. Mm. Uh, I think that's, that's the rather important uh, uh, aspect of it.
2: It um, is. I mean, it's it's probably worth noting at this point that Bruce Lee is not the only asshole... And another parallel with Extras is the fact that the protagonists are blissfully unaware of their own fragility.
0: Andy certainly is. Maggie's not fragile. She's remarkably resilient.
2: Mm, I was thinking more of Andy, but yeah, just the, the Ricks wandering around... Utterly cut off from everything. Andy Millman. And not having a clue.
0: Oh, sorry. You meant Rick in uh, in this.
2: Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there.
0: <laughs> I, I wasn't doing a thing there. I was actually genuinely um, paralleling yeah. the two. Yeah,
2: but, but it, it, there was a point, and I'm not sure how far we were into the film, where I said something about it being um, sort of unaware of what it was doing in terms of presenting these... Um, Sort of delicate flowers of manhood who really can't be criticised on anything, or they fall apart. And you said, or that
0: it, told the truth, or they yeah, fall apart.
2: Absolutely. Even
0: even if that truth isn't necessarily a criticism, it's just a painful truth.
2: Yeah, and and they were just they were so incredibly lonely. Mm. That was what was was kind of coming across really strongly. And you said that it's you know that's that's the point. But then it's that old thing of. You've got to ask yourself at what point you're just replicating something rather than actually commenting on it.
0: Hmm. Now, having fragile male egos in the film and having uh, you know, flawed, rotten characters is certainly not a crime. It's not something that I'm going to condemn a film for.
2: Good Lord, no, especially not a Tarantino film.
0: Yeah. The positioning of them, though, is dicey. Mm-hmm. We'll come to that in a, in a bit. The other two major things this reminded me of, um, one of them I already said, well, in fact, I said both of them to you. Um, one is BoJack Horseman. This is BoJack Hugh Man. Mm. Back in the 50s, I was in a very famous TV show.
3: Yeah.
0: Though Horsin' Around is basically different strokes with a bit of Full House in there. And Bounty Law is a TV show called Gunsmoke. And he's living in the same place as BoJack and he's sucking around his apartment and uh, that makes Brad Pitt Todd.
2: See, now I was just about to say, and I am here to tell you... Even
0: when I played my butt like the bongos?
2: Brad Pitt is no Mr. Peanut Butter.
0: (laughs) No. But he is Todd. Yeah. The friend who just keeps hanging around.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: Uh, And the other thing is, uh, this was... uh, And this didn't really occur to me till about an hour and a half in, but I realised it was like sitting down in front of YouTube to watch... Grand Theft Auto Hollywood, a game you've not yet played, but you're watching all the cutscenes in between the missions. Mm. And they're driving around the place and you're in the car with them. So you're like driving from one place to the other. And it just went fucking on. And for context, folks, two or three of my favorite films of all time have been directed by Quentin Tarantino. Pulp fiction being the film, the film, capital T, capital F that made me want to do something to do with film with my life. And I have as a result. So I owe him a lot. But there have been... uh, We've only seen Kill Bill 1 and 2 in the cinema together. Mm. And that is because Tarantino keeps falling out of favour with us by releasing films that disgust or disturb or depress or disappoint us in some way that makes us steer clear of him.
2: Mm. Although I would say that my the films of his that I am less impressed by are kind of the beginning and the end.
0: Because
2: <laughs> I'm not as blown away by Pulp Fiction as you are. It's good. Oh, wait,
0: right, You say... As blown away, as though I am still blown away. I'm still being blown away. Okay, I was 14 at the time. Okay. <laughs> I am now 38. All right, that's fair enough. About to be 39 tomorrow.
2: Okay. Um, but yeah, I've I've never been quite as impressed with Pulp Fiction. I actively dislike Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. and I couldn't stand Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. Everything in the middle is oh, and kind of... Death Proof? I, I still have a little bit of a soft spot for Death Proof. Last time we watched it, a lot less so, but it's still... You know, I prefer it to Hateful Eight, put it that way.
0: Hateful Eight was the, uh, well, it was the sin of being boring as mm-hmm. well as nasty and very long.
2: Which he's pulled that trick out of his ass again.
0: So film eight and film nine have th- those problems for yeah. us. Yes. 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot the of people fucking love this of film. vast majority people
2: are going to love this and I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them.
0: And if you loved this Enjoy. film, that is fine.
2: Like an eclair. It
0: is cool. ...to like a film. Yes. It's fine. (laughs) It's very fine. The other thing this reminded me of... uh, ...especially by the end... ...was Garth Ennis stuff. It looked like Tarantino had been reading Preacher... ...cover to cover for the past few years... ...because basically Brad Pitt... At least
2: somebody has. The makers of Preacher weren't.
0: Nah. (laughs) Because Brad Pitt... ...was basically an aged Jesse Custer... Mm. ...just hobbling around the place like a cowboy... ...cool as fuck... ...so confident in everything he says that the reader considers him right even if the story proves him wrong, and somehow the best fighter in the world. Yeah, no, uh,
2: no, no, no. I get what you mean. He
0: and was he the was... guy for all the boys he in the audience really to was. wish they were that fucking cool. He you got, really was. you've got fucking Steve McQueen in this movie, and he is on screen for a few seconds. He's like, oh, hello, "I'm I'm Damien Lewis, I'm nowhere near as fucking cool as him." Mm. And Brad Pitt's just sort of mooching around the place, you know, like doing Tyler Durden. He's not doing. The words of Tyler Durden. He's not doing the mannerisms of Tyler Durden. And thankfully he is not doing the philosophy of Tyler Durden. But there is a mode he goes into where he just don't give a fuck. That laid back cool. Certain enough that he's right unconcerned as to whether he's wrong. Which makes him kind of a laid-back, James Bond-like male identification figure.
2: See, for me, there was Which is really
0: fucking dangerous in this film.
2: For me, there was this meta-layer of he's here to look cool and to sort of... (laughs) Kick-ass. Yeah, kick-ass and chew bubblegum. Well, he does. The impression that I couldn't shake of him the whole time is, but he's just this...
0: Husk.
2: Yeah, husk of a man. This this sort of there's a history of potential unnecessary violence. He's hapless, he's useless, his dog loves him, but that's about it. He lives in a shitty house, he can't look after himself, and at the end of the day, he saves the day by accident.
0: However, he's still going to be a hero to many, many.
2: I'm sure he is.
0: There is infinite mileage to be gained from a handsome, charismatic man prizing, the uncomplicated, and the complicated. You're either exuding working man's charm, or you're a cult leader. Ergo, I confer on writers who create this kind of character a certain degree of responsibility, especially now. Creating heroes boys can get fanatical about is a dangerous business. Having said that, Cliff does get extra points for not taking the bait with the clearly underage PUSSY painted as a crazy nymphomaniac by Quentin Tarantino, who loses points. I guess there is a direct way to gauge the influence of this film uh, over the next few years. Go out on a summer's day, look at the feet of all the guys, count the moccasins and divide by two. Feet.
2: Feet. (laughs) Holy hell.
0: He's not even hiding it anymore. He's
2: not.
1: Oh, fuck! fucking Jesus
2: Christ, Quentin, we get it. We get it. I, I... Good for you, mate. I'm not here to kink shame, but for the love of God, I got to the point where I was like, right, for every pair of feet he sticks up front in this film, I want a quid off my movie ticket back.
0: By the way, all credit to We Hate Movies for what I guess I'm going to be calling the pervert voice. The girl's feet, and now she puts them up on the dashboard. Oh, and they're dirty feet. Oh, oh. It's
2: fine. It's fine. <laughs> But seriously...
0: If you like feet, that's fine.
2: But I just kept thinking, wiggle your big toe. Like, you've done it to good narrative effect. It's (laughs) done.
0: Look, a kink is never truly (laughs) done. That's true. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's open with him to share it with the world, whether we like it or not.
2: That's fine. I think he's going to get over the feet before he gets over Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: Yeah. Um... I'm not going to particularly harp on about uh, DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. These are two actors that I have found increasingly less charming and dynamic in uh, re- recent years. Mm. Uh, and um I'm in the very... Rare minority of guys who was interested in DiCaprio when he was a wafer thin, sensitive kid, mm. and the moment he became a beefy, tough guy who would punch dudes for Scorsese, all
2: that potential's shout, all been pissed away, hasn't it? And
0: just take all the drugs and do all the <laughs> drinking and go,
2: Aah! "Fuck
1: you! i fucking arresting you! What the fuck do you do? What are you fucking idiot? What the fuck did you just fucking say? You just shut up. the fuck up!"
0: A- Thinking about it. DiCaprio has been screaming since he was knee-high to a pig's eye. Either thou
1: or I am both my
3: god.
0: I need all the livers of all the bisons. Mm. Uh, I I just tuned the fuck out. I Just don't. He is a scream presence that I tolerate Mm. at best. Or, if you will, a scream presence.
1: Where is my?
0: He's not going to drag me to a movie, Mm. and sometimes he might actively discourage me. It's not Mark Wahlberg levels, but don't care. And once again, we are absolutely in the minority with this one. Everyone else considers Leonardo DiCaprio to be one of the absolute pinnacles of the acting profession. And as for Brad Pitt, he had to fight even harder to extricate himself from his pretty boy original positioning in Hollywood into more edgy, dangerous, sometimes crazed roles like Twelve Monkeys. And it feels like he's relaxed under the camera over more recent years. And it's my fault here for not being able to extricate him from one of my most loathed films of all time, World War Z, which he made himself very much the shining star of. It was supposed to be a film about the world. Okay, so the Bruce Lee thing bothers me to a degree where I'm going to have to save some of this for later in the show. Bruce Lee hasn't really been in the public eye or the uh, world of entertainment for quite some time. The last thing he was in very significantly was Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which we mentioned on our The Crow episode Mm. uh, of the quick reviews. And um, that was like 1993,
2: 1994. Something like that, yeah. Early 90s.
0: So it's been a long fucking time. It's been as long as since Pulp Fiction came out. And also significantly... There's nothing Bruce Lee related on the horizon. No. Which means that this version of Bruce Lee is the version that people will remember now. I, I The first time I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, God, please don't come at this with a, Bruce Lee, he ain't all that. And then I watched the film, and it's like, even worse than Bruce Lee, he ain't all that. This is not me going, Bruce Lee was a god man. Uh, not, nor that, you know, he was a, uh, a, a man who's, Reputation should be considered sacrosanct and kept in a diamond-cased, untouchable. But there is a certain amount of respect required when bringing real-life figures to the screen. Mm. If they're going to be an asshole in one scene, it might be a good idea to humanise them in a scene with dialogue. Him teaching Sharon Tate um, Kung Fu, I was like, oh sorry, maybe even Jeet Kune Do. I was thinking, okay, we can see a different side of him here. Can we get some dialogue between these two? No, no, it's just a silent fight scene, very briefly to show how she fought in a Dean Martin movie. So he he came off in the simplest boy terms, like an arrogant wanker who thinks he's odd, mm. but are oh, you odd? When he goes up against the real-life uh, uh, Vinnie Jones, he gets uh, his ass thrown into a car. Um The dialogue exchange about, you know, my hands are registered weapons. That is literally a thing you put in a film to make someone look like an idiot. Because we, the audience, are all entirely with Cliff. And I'm sure Bruce did go around saying that sort of thing. But he's not just some drunk tit in a pub.
1: You don't know, man. I'm like a motherfucking earthquake wrapped in a hurricane. nestled in a box of tsunamis, man. That's what I am, man. I'm fucking kick your ass. I'm like a motherfucking natural disaster times triplicate, man. (laughs) Fucking waiting to kick your ass. You don't even know, man, because I'm trained in super secret martial arts, man. Shit, I can't even tell you, man. I had to live underwater for a year, man, learn this shit. I can't even avow any of this stuff. I got tricks. I know fucking 43 ways to kill you with a pimento, my man, so don't fuck with me.
0: So whether Tarantino was deliberately using this filmic language or not, that is how the scene is shot. Apparently the actor played uh, Lee... As though in the third round of that fight, he was going to win it. But that's
2: that's the thing... Tarantino's
0: eye on him says he probably wasn't because he's been building up Brad Pitt as this laid-back, chilled-out, incredibly tough motherfucker the whole way through the film.
2: Whether or not he was going to win the third round is irrelevant. Whether or not he would have been able to beat anybody who stood up in front of him is not the point. He was portrayed... As a prick. As a prick.
0: just going to read you one little quote from the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, his book. Do not think about winning or losing. Do not think about pride and pain. The biggest mistake is to anticipate the outcome of a fight. You should not think about whether it ends in victory or defeat. Let nature take its course and your weapons will be used at the right time. That does not sound like the words of the guy we saw in this movie. It sounds like something the guy we saw in this movie could never possibly write. And Linda Lee and Shannon Lee are understandably pissed off. Mm. Especially since they don't get any other representation for Bruce Lee at the moment.
2: Although, I mean, apparently they did say that Mike Moe did the performance pretty well in terms of replicating his mannerisms and the way Bruce Lee talked. Which
0: might actually be worse. Because if he did it badly, people would be like, well, that's not Bruce Lee. Mm. But the fact that he did it quite well makes a convincing case that Bruce Lee was, just an arrogant arsehole who wasn't all that good at fighting.
2: And also, if the point of that scene was to demonstrate that Brad Pitt was... Uh,
0: the toughest sweet, man in the whole
2: world! ...physically tough and had, like, these extreme strength and and fighting ability, that was completely lost on me because I was too busy laughing at Zoe Bell, who was brilliant. I liked her in that scene. I thought it was funny.
0: <laughs> she, she was funny. Yes. <clears throat> Not necessarily, Belle, frankly.
2: need to more stuff. Good Lord, no. That's another thing. I, I'm just going to mention this very briefly because I have no doubt that we will go into this in way more detail when we do other Tarantino films in much more depth in future. But I know a lot of people do not like the way Tarantino writes and directs female characters. Um, given that From Killville... feed-up. <laughs> Given that Kill Bill is almost literally my favourite film of all time and I watch it every year on my birthday.
0: You um, skipped it this year.
2: I did skip it this year. Why? Um, I was a bit off him at the time mm-hmm. because of the whole... Yeah, he's been an arsehole over the whole Harvey Weinstein thing and also he was a shit to Uma Thurman and nearly broke her neck.
0: To elaborate on that, the... Filming of Kill Bill Volume 2. We didn't find this out until fairly recently. Way, way after we recorded our show on Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. Way back in 2010. The car she drives in Kill Bill Volume 2. uh, She had to drive along a long stretch of road in one direction. And uh, Tarantino tested the car. And she was trepidatious about driving. And he said, no, it's fine. Now drive in the other direction. The other direction had a twist in it. She ended up crashing and injuring herself. And she got into that car because she trusted him. He, as the director, should have known exactly where that road was going. He didn't consider it to be stunt driving. She trusted him. He regrets his actions. Now, it's noteworthy that Uma Thurman's daughter is in this film, Maya Hawke, who plays Robin in Stranger Things 3, and she gets into an old shitty car and drives off near the end. And I was like, yeah, get into that old shitty car that Tarantino told you to get in. And that was almost like, he that was stunt casting. He deliberately got... Uma Thurman's daughter to get into an old shitty car for him.
2: To make the point that, look, see, she trusts me now with her daughter in a car? Yeah. Do you think that was on purpose? I think it was. The conclusion that I came to watching this is that when the female characters are the focus and he's actually writing and directing them, they're great. When they're background, my god are they background. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah,
0: that makes sense.
2: Unfortunately, when male characters are his focus, they tend to be... Sorry, I will reverse. When white male characters are his focus, they tend to be foil-thin.
0: Except for uh, King Schultz. Yes. More on Django Unchained at some point soon. We are going to cover that. So the film was a slog, and it started to really weigh me down around about the midway point, The, the when he went up to the hippie ranch. Right, I suppose I'm going to have to like, recontextualize this. I went in kind of expecting the alternate reality take on the Sharon Tate murders. Having seen Inglorious Bastards where he goes, Yeah, well what if we just fucking shot Hitler? Wouldn't it be brilliant? It's a wonderful catharsis at the end. And uh it's it's like, well that didn't happen. Fuck it, it's a movie and he can do whatever he wants. And frankly, having Hitler humiliated and shot and having Nazis screaming. While they burn to death in a cinema, that's great, no problem there. Uh, and uh, you know, full uh, thumbs up to uh, Inglorious Bastards for uh, for going. You know what? Just because this didn't happen in history, doesn't mean we can't watch that and get a little glimmer of uh, wouldn't it be great? The same as uh, um, fighting Mecca Hitler in Wolfenstein. I feel like if we're taught young boys earlier. That Nazis are shit, especially Hitler, and that Nazis are pathetic, especially Hitler, might not have quite so much of a Nazi problem right now. Anyway, um, Django Unchained, obviously, it's got the revenge story and the turning the tables on uh, uh, slave owners, which did actually happen in some small scenarios probably not as operatic and as intricate as what happened in Django but it's uh, a stylized version of what should have happened more uh, and again, massive catharsis uh, so in this I was thinking right, so they're going to change that but I felt really unpleasant the whole way through because the constant dwelling on Sharon Tate uh, who Margot Robbie played in this sort of lovely, dreamy adorable way um, as someone Oblivious to impending horror, which is so out-the-window obscene. What I'm going to do here to contextualise the Sharon Tate murders in a cultural, historical manner is to briefly hand over to Bob, Movie Bob Chipman, who, as always, has a knack for wording things in a very clear fashion.
3: Oh, and of course also Charles Manson and the Manson family, the deranged cult of LA-area transient grifters squatting on the dilapidated movie ranch where actors like Rick and Cliff once worked and who, in the real-life version of events, attained terrible infamy with the home invasion murders of Tate, her unborn child, and several others at their home in 1969, an event which shocked the nation and is often framed by pop history as both the moment where the American culture turned hard against the 1960s flower children demographic and also sometimes as the official point of no return for the traditional Hollywood studio and star system mystique, i.e. the spectacle of a young actress viewed by many as the next big all-American it-girl movie star dying in so horrible a fashion amid the general collapse of interest in traditional studio-driven star movies of the time. But in Once Upon a Time's version of history, that's not what happens. Instead, the Manson Family killers get distracted on their way to the Tate House by recognizing Rick from the TV and decided to be more interesting to kill a TV cowboy instead. And Cliff, who earlier in the film had encountered the family at the ranch and knows more or less what they're about or at least suspects such, basically beats them to death with his bare hands because he's a roughneck anti-hero with a potentially dark past played by Brad Pitt in a Quentin Tarantino movie and Rick is… not those things, but he does own a flamethrower. The killings are thus thwarted, Tate and her friends survive without even finding out that they were ever in danger in the first place and it turns out they're fans of Rick's, implicitly winning him access to continued life on the Hollywood A-list after all. Happy ending! I mean… maybe? Charles Manson himself is technically still out there and we never do find out if Cliff is actually guilty of the bad thing he may or may not have done in his past but… Tarantino movie. Anyway, as you may gather, once critics and early audiences were done picking their jaws up from the surprise finish, many began to question whether or not using real-life murders for a twist like this is an incredibly poor taste, particularly considering the uniquely misogynistic brutality of Tate's butchering and Tarantino's not-exactly-tasteful history with violence against women as a plot device in general. It's an interestingly uncomfortable question that I'm not really sure has an objective answer. In this timeline, the Mansons don't get to taint the idyllic, if cheesy Los Angeles vibe of then-six-year-old Tarantino's youth and instead of signaling the end for real of a Hollywood where old-school movie heroes like Rick Dalton could be the stars, driving them into the wilderness of spaghetti westerns and B-movies where they'd become cult icons to be loved and eventually resurrected by nostalgic Gen X ironists like Quentin Tarantino, in case this was all too subtle, two guys like that get to save the day, potentially meaning an entirely different pop culture history, one perhaps more preferable to Tarantino's sensibility.
0: And you can take in that entire article in Does Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Cross the Line, which is part of Bob's The Big Picture show. (laughs) So, mixed up in this loopy, batshit, alternate history plot, potentially muddied by the debatable extent of just exactly how self-serving to Tarantino's interests this ending is supposed to be, maybe entirely, maybe not at all, maybe just a figurative windfall break for a pair of fictional dudes, you've got tragic real-life events seen as exemplifying a change in how America viewed itself. The Korean and Vietnam wars had left irreparable scars on those who served and those who had to live with what their country had done to another people and to its own. Watergate was just a few years off. If you can't trust the President of the United States, what is the world coming to? A painful maturing process from the naivete of the 1950s was downright inevitable. The murders didn't suddenly change Hollywood overnight all on their own. Obviously, the system had been changing already from what we saw at play within the framework of this movie, with Polanski himself being one of a new breed of visionary white male directors, offering up challenging new fare, alongside his contemporaries, Coppola, Scorsese, De Palma, Bormann, not to mention Spielberg and Lucas. But nonetheless, the ending here does hint at a potentially different future, and that is inescapably troubling. So Tarantino changed that. And he changed it in a way that uh, seemed to to be fulfilling a a weird kind of power revenge fantasy of, of positioning these pieces that he spent a long time building up as to you know, this incredibly tough guy and then he made sure that there was a flamethrower in there so that that would work and he made sure that the dog was carefully uh, mapped out and then he put all these pieces in there and then he just... It was like a, a breakfast machine. Da, 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 Rube Goldberg. And, um,
2: it doesn't make breakfast at all.
0: All it does is bash your head repeatedly <laughs> against the stonework. The level of horrific... Sickening fucking violence committed against these bumbling hippies. Sick fucking cultists though they may be, about to, in real life, kill a pregnant woman and her friends. Monsters. And the fact that it's like, yeah, you know, fucking hippies, like throughout the film. Rick, our hero, hates hippies. And since we know this is the Manson family, we're not really given any counterpoint to that. It actually seemed like. Quentin Tarantino himself had a genuine axe to grind against all hippies. <laughs> Dudes and girls who live in squats and don't like society and are just basically Hey man, you're a great horse and buzz, man, are not the same as Nazis. <laughs> I know that that's not what he's trying to say in this film. However, the disgust levelled at the hippies and the, look at them, the hippies all living together in a commune, just getting ready to kill Sharon Tate. It was weirdly Daily Mail. Yes. Do do you get get what I mean with that Not
2: Daily Mail, Daily Express.
0: Daily Express. And I'll
2: tell you for why. Okay, yeah. Because this, this, I'm this, I'm
0: not by the way, I'm not super like I'm fucking not pro Manson family. I've already ranted about what a complete and total <laughs> Charlie Manson was.
2: I don't think anybody's going to think you're pro Manson family sweetheart.
0: Yeah, no. Back in our uh, quick review of Bad Times at the El Royale, which we'll talk about in a bit, I went off on one regarding Manson with a whole bunch of facts. And since this is now a main event show. Let's go back there and catch up on those facts about the Manson family. Charles Manson, who was born in 1934 and died in 2017 in prison, was an American criminal and cult leader. In the mid-1967, he formed what became known as the Manson family, a quasi-commune based in California, which you saw in the film. Manson's followers committed a series of nine murders at four locations in July and August 1969, one of which you saw averted, one of which... But if you've actually ever gone and read what Charles Manson thought about Beatles music, you realise to yourself, oh, he was a fuckwit. He was a complete and utter (laughs) fuckwit.
2: If the murders hadn't already given it away. (laughs)
0: Like, you know, obviously the murders, but, like, he's an idiot and ridiculously narcissistic and in a kind of juvenile way as well, Mm. and not very imaginative. I'm going to read you just the the basics of this one, because it's quite extraordinary, but not in an impressive way. Let's see. Manson had been predicting racial war for some time before he used the term helter-skelter. His first use of the term was the gathering of the family on New Year's Eve 1968. This took place in the family's base at Myers Ranch near California's Death Valley, In its final form, which was reached by mid-February 1969, the scenario had Manson as not only the war's ultimate beneficiary, but its musical cause, so he was going to start the war. He and his family would create an album with songs whose message concerning the war would be as subtle as those he heard in the songs of the Beatles. Yes, subtlety is not one of Charlie Manson's strong points. More than merely foretelling the conflict, this would trigger it for instructing the young love, America's white youth, To join the family, it would draw the young white female hippies out of San Francisco's Hate ashbury Black men thus deprived... mm, Black men thus deprived of the white women whom the political changes of the 60s had made sexually available to them (sighs) would be without an outlet for their frustrations and would lash out in violent crimes against whites. The resultant murderous rampage against blacks by frightened whites would then be exploited by militant blacks to provoke... An internecine war of near extermination between racist and non-racist whites over blacks' treatment. Then the militant blacks would arise to sneakily finish off the few whites they would know to have survived. Indeed, they would kill off all non-blacks. So what he was saying was, the racist white people would fight the non-racist white people, almost all of them would die, and then the blacks would finish them off. Brilliant. In this holocaust, the members of the enlarged family would have little to fear. They would wait out the war in a secret city that was underneath Death Valley that they could reach through a hole in the ground, as the only actual remaining whites upon the race war's true conclusion... They would emerge from the underground to rule the now satisfied blacks, who, as the vision went, were being capable of running the world. At that point, Manson would scratch the black man's fuzzy head and kick him in the butt and tell him to go pick the cotton and go be a good N-word. So his three-point plan was, one, make an album, two, go and live in a hole, three, come out and rule the world. All right. The term "helter Skelter was from the Beatles song of that name which referred to the British amusement park ride of that name but was interpreted by Manson as Concerned with the War.
1: When I get to the bottom I go back to the top of the slide
0: So that was the fun, kind of chaotic Paul McCartney song that Charlie Manson posited meant the end times are coming. But here's the kicker. This is what's truly ridiculous. Manson's interpretation of Beatles lyrics. I mean, obviously that's just mad bullshit that you could probably find on the internet right now for people thinking they're incredibly original. But here's those interpretations, and this is a wonderful parallel for people who horribly misinterpret art. <laughs> In the song I Will, and when at last I find you, your song will fill the air. Sing it loud so I can hear you, make it easy to be near you. Meaning, the Beatles are looking for Jesus Christ. Honey Pie. Oh, Honey Pie, my position is tragic. Come and show me the magic of your hollywood song meaning the beatles know jesus christ has returned to earth and is in los angeles oh honey pie you are driving me frantic sail across the atlantic to be where you belong meaning the beatles want jesus christ to come to england i'm in love but i'm lazy meaning the beatles love jesus christ but they're too lazy to go looking for him don't pass me by I listen for your footsteps coming up the drive, listen for your footsteps, but they don't arrive. Meaning, the Beatles are calling for Jesus Christ. Do you see a pattern developing here? Your blues. Yes, I'm lonely, wanna die. Yes, I'm lonely, wanna die. If I ain't dead already, girl, you know the reason why. Meaning, the Beatles are calling for Jesus Christ. How fucking boring would it have been to hang around Charlie Manson? So what do you think? Immigrant song means, Charlie. Uh, Jesus Christ is coming and, uh, Led Zeppelin want him, me, to help them. You narcissistic shitbag. Blue Jar Way. There's a fog upon LA and my friends have lost their way. They'll be over soon, they said, now they've lost themselves instead. Meaning, the Beatles are calling for Jesus Christ. Happiness is a warm gun. Significance, the Beatles are telling blacks to get guns and fight whites. Or, you know... John Lennon observed that America really loves guns. Revolution 1. You say you got a real solution, well, you know, we'd all love to see the plan. Meaning, the Beatles want Manson to tell them how to escape the horrors of Helter Skelter. They're ready for the violence. They want Manson to create his album that will tell them what to do. Its song will be the plan, whose subtle message will be aimed at the various parts of society that will be involved in Helter Skelter. Shut the fuck up, Charlie Manson. The world is so much better now that you're dead.
2: But, okay. Here's the thing. And I I was for the most part, side note part- by the
0: way, if you're invoking like if you're doing all of this with your fuck it, with your um, alternate history, have Charlie saunter up to the house and go, "Hey, what's going on, man?" and then have the dog rip his head clean the fuck off. Like go hog wild. Get Charlie in there as well. Okay. You know, oh, cuz he's wonder- he's fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
2: For the most part I I kind of just watched and enjoyed some of the performances in the film. I liked the opening to a degree. I was kind of going with it and more or less enjoying it. And then it just became very long and very bloated and very dull. And like I said, my ass went to sleep. But the way this closed out made me...
0: Cry, I saw you wiping away tears. Yes,
2: but that was for a very specific reason. But it made me very frustrated and sick because the the comparison with Inglorious and the fact that the whole point of, of the end of Inglorious, as you say, is the catharsis, that they take this... Man who was so evil and caused so much evil as to have become conceptual and destroyed him and his ilk in a way that that attacked the whole concept of the holocaust and mm-hmm. and uh, Jewish genocide and the the genocide of many, many other minority groups of people that the Nazis enacted. The revenge fantasy element of Django. Although it's obviously focused very specifically on the Candy Mansion, it's a fictional account and it epitomises the idea of revenge on slavery as a concept and that whole idea of you, you do not own people and this is what happens to you if you think you can do that. The revenge that uh, B gets on Bill at the end of Kill Bill, although it is very close and it is very personal particularly personal it is fictionalized and it is it's the concept of the abusive relationship the abusive partner who thinks that they can control everything about you including your bodily autonomy and that's what the revenge is against. These
0: are Jackie against Ordell. She's been held by him the, for yeah, all those years. But
2: these are these are concepts. They are huge. They are massive. And that's why those revenges feel cathartic. What happened at the end of this felt like Quentin had rewritten history in order to save a very sweet, pretty white girl. Yeah. And, and to do that, that is not...
0: it required the butchery of two really horrible white girls and an idiotic white man. Well, this man. is
2: this is not to say not just the, by the shooting way. of
0: them, or the stabbing of them, or the punching of them. They were tortured to death
2: this is this is not to say that i am dismissing the fact that sharon tate died it was horrible it was also horrible that the other people who were in the house with her died but everybody's kind of fixated Mm. on her because she's the blonde and the also pregnant and the pregnant and the yes it was horrendous it was a terrible terrible thing but the way this gets rewritten all that happens, all that happens is three ineffectual twats who were sent to do the bidding of the only person involved in all this who you really could conceptualise as something horrible get beaten to death. What happens to the rest of the Manson family? Fucking nothing.
1: Sunshine. The sun
2: did it. It's the sun.
1: The sun did it, but it's really Summer Blonde, the gentle hair lightener. Just shampoo, it looks like the sun did it. Get Summer Blonde or New Summer Blonde Plus with its own conditioning rinse for extra body and shine. Say the sun did it, don't let on that. It was really summer blonde. Like such a tiny touch that you can always say. But the sun did it. There were
0: a couple of other things that made me really uncomfortable. One of them was just a little thing. But during the ranch scene, which was spread out and out and out and out and out, ridiculously long, everything pointed towards Brad Pitt getting killed there. And I was just sitting there thinking, right, so when he gets killed, and he will be, after walking into the jaws of death, being told these are the jaws of death, being having the teeth identified to him, you know, being led into the mouth, sitting on the tongue, investigating the uvula while the jaws slowly close around him... <laughs> Are we going to get a whole slew of videos asking why Brad Pitt was so stupid in that movie to walk into the jaws of death to only to get himself shot and killed so that... Leo DiCaprio could go on a, a kill crazy rampage and kill the Manson family before they could kill Sharon Tate that's how I thought the thing was going to go and he doesn't and it feels like a complete fucking cheat that he doesn't because everything about him sneaking in there and being given all the fucking warnings then to have it not paid off like, one of the things Tarantino's really good at is building up tension but there's so much in this film that's artificial mm. like it's a tense scene but it's actually a scene being filmed in a movie so you're like actually I don't care about what's happening here. There's no tension here. And actually thinking about it, I don't care about this character, so there's no tension here. So it's not tension, it's just a slog. It's just a collection of scenes that go on and on and on. And all of that knack for dialogue he has, that, I can quote you Pulp Fiction, word for word, beginning to end. It's not his best script, but it's incredibly catchy. Mm. It's not there in this, so I didn't have that. But the when Tex... This is the thing that's a little. When Brad Pitt beats the fuck out of that hippie in this kind of, don't you want to punch a hippie in the face and break his teeth? I want to punch that hippie, yes, because he's from the Manson family, but this feels very much like, don't you want to punch a hippie? Again, they're, 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 there's this false ratcheting up of tension and then Tex comes galloping in. It's the scene, it's the shot from Django after he's gotten a horse, after he's killed the miners. Um... And he's riding back to uh, the plantation. It is a triumphant moment in Django Unchained. It is an amazing piece of cinema. And he reuses that shot here for this fucking nobody. I don't get it. And then that shot came to nothing. It, that they, like, I don't think Brad Pitt was even there anymore. Like the Tex is riding along and it's like, yeah, hey, remember that shot? There seems to be so much B-roll and shit that didn't need to be in this two-hour, 46-minute film. It's so long! And, and because it concerns itself with movies, it is the most self-indulgent of maybe the most self-indulgent of directors. I was astonished. How self indulgent this film was. Mm. You better call the police, call the corner, call up your priest, have the warrior, walk in no peace. When I find that,
1: put it back to you.
0: They took a lot of time to build up the Manson family as this sort of creeping threat. But as you just heard, he was kind of a boring idiot, which means his followers were also morons to be able to listen to that claptrap and go, wow, he's really saying something. go! these guys are not Hitler's army and these guys are not Candyland and his slave owners. These guys are the KKK in Django Unchained, the guys who come in with the. A threat at first, the crusading knights they wish to be portrayed as, followed by the reality, which is...
1: Who made this goddamn shit? Well, wife. You make your own goddamn match. Look, nobody's saying they don't appreciate what Jenny did. Well, if all I had to do was cut a hole in a bag, I could have cut it better than this. What about yeah. you, Robert? Yeah. Can you see? Not too good. I mean, if I don't move my head, I can see you pretty good, more or less. When I start riding, the bag's moving
0: all over, and I'm riding blind. I just
3: made mine worse.
0: That's who this cult need to be built up as. They needed to be thoroughly underlined as white supremacists. That's who the Manson family were. There was none of that shit, none of it in this film. The catharsis comes from killing those people, from depowering that symbol. It's not hippies. It's Nazis. Again, American Nazis. But the other thing that really bothered the shit out of me, Brad Pitt allegedly killed his wife. And people are like, well, he killed his wife and... and..." Uh,
2: Brad Pitt's character.
0: Brad Pitt's character. What's his name? (laughs) Um, Two hours, 46 minutes... And I could not remember Leo DiCaprio's character or Brad Pitt's character. They were just DiCaprio and Pitt. That's how hard they were pushed on the fo- the posters as cool guys. Mm. Even though DiCaprio's character clearly isn't cool. He's an emotional wreck. And luckily, I kind of liked the fact that he was an emotional yeah, wreck.
2: Yeah, so
0: did I. Again, that was kind of Bojack. It's just that it doesn't have any of the, char- the charm and brilliance and acerbic nature of Bojack. It doesn't have any of those good things. Mm. And while everyone else was sniggering along, I didn't laugh once, which puts it far from BoJack. It was empty.
2: The fact that he's an emotional wreck also has no resolution.
0: Indeed. And, you know, he's in the periphery of Hollywood looking in and he wants just a little kiss of that brass ring. And and then at the end he gets it, and you're like, hey, I hate that guy. I don't care whether he gets a kiss of the brass ring. But here's the thing. Cliff apparently killed his wife definitely killed his wife his fingers on the fucking trigger and she's being a harpy to him and it's a kind of yeah wouldn't you kill her lads fuck you for that scene for a start but Kurt Russell's saying in a kind of allegedly he did this terrible thing to a woman I mean like you know my wife doesn't like him it's politics and it's like yeah I fucking get it Quentin I get what you're saying A guy in Hollywood did a terrible thing and women don't like him for some reason now, even though it was a long time ago. And look at all the good he's done after that one little thing. It's not a very subtle point you're making there.
2: Not when Polanski's in your fucking movie, no.
0: At one point, Sharon Tate is in between the real-life Polanski, the guy who raped anally a 13-year-old girl. Her name at the time was Samantha Jane Gailey. And is not allowed back in America. As well, is is is, not, is afraid of going back to America because they'll put him in jail forever. Rightly so. Uh, She's sandwiched between him and her other boyfriend, played by Emil Hirsch, who in real life I really loved him in The Girl Next Door and Speed Racer. But he choked a female producer in a nightclub. Her name's Danny Bernfeld. He was getting drunk and coming on to her. She was rebutting his advances. He was getting nasty. He pulled at her, he grabbed her hair, she lightly shoved him away. He grabbed her in the curve of the elbow, choked her, threw her across the table. She felt the front of her throat hit the back of her throat. One eyewitness said that Hirsch put Bernfeld in a chokehold from behind, dragged her across the table and body slammed her to the floor. Took two people to pull Hirsch off her. He got a $750 fine and 90 days in jail, which was commuted to 15 days in jail and $4,750. So he bought his way out. He was also ordered to pay restitution to Bernfeld, a portion of which covered her hospital bills. Source, The Independent. And that happened with Speed Racer. This sweet guy from A Girl Next Door. And now I can't like him. So you've got the choker over here in real life, and then the guy playing the anal rapist over here, and Sharon Tate's doing the monkey in the, mi- in the middle of him. it's like, Quentin, are you off your fucking tits? Oh, sorry. Yes.
1: yes.
0: <laughs> there was one other bit that links with Django Unchained in re- the most insidious like you had to know you were doing this way and that he can't undo. That goes beyond that shot. Uh Roman Polanski's dressed in that stupid fucking Austin Powers outfit that Django wears. Ugh. Our hero, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> And of course, every time I voice something to this effect on Twitter, I immediately pick up people telling me, well, it really all depends on if you're the sort of person who's going to hold an artist's personal life against them. I'm able to watch films and just disregard the personal actions of the artist. Sadly, I'm not, because I look at what's coming from inside a person. And I have to judge every single scenario on a case-by-case basis. So, for example, Quentin Tarantino endangered Uma Thurman that one time, and that was a shitty, stupid mistake on his part, but it's not the same as, say, Brian Singer or Kevin Spacey. However, he also was well aware of what Harvey Weinstein was doing for many, many years. And that is something that I have to take into consideration when judging his character, and from that, when judging his work. Everyone has their own personal line. And I don't jump on people's case when they say, I just watched Annie Hall last night. How dare you watch that when Woody Allen wrote and directed and starred in it. I just let them watch it and I leave it. Mainly because I'm fortunate enough to have this podcast as an outlet. So I can actually get what I need to say said. But people do jump on my case when I say, I haven't felt the need to watch Baby Driver for ages because of Kevin Spacey. What you- Why can't we go back to the era of the 60s? Quentin, with the money you reserved for this film, you can basically do your house up to look like the 60s, get people to walk around it dressed in those clothes, and talk only about movies from that era forever. You can even pay the girls extra to never wear shoes.
2: What you're saying about the lack of tension, that's evident in the end as well. The whole point of the catharsis of the other films that I mentioned is that the characters that the violence is visited on have been built up to be horrendously terrible individuals. The catharsis at the end of this he doesn't seem to know whether he wants the the final outbreath to be the fact that Sharon Tate is not dead. Well that's not catharsis, that's relief. That's not the same thing. And that was what made me cry, was just all I could think of while she's talking on the intercom and um, while they stood on the driveway is you're saying how lovely it is that she's still alive. But she's not, though, is she? You can't actually undo the fact that this one person died and didn't, you know, these four people died and didn't need to.
0: The version of the film I thought it was going to be either a revenge for killing Sharon Tate or revenge for killing Brad Pitt when I was halfway through the movie and just they set up this ranch and it's like right so this is actually a really good place to have a horrible shootout or a horrible massacre and I was like squirming in my seat going most of the Manson family are willowy girls you know knife wielding willowy girls crazy willowy girls but like I don't want to see this but at the same time that culminating in the smashing of Charlie Manson's head in mm-hmm. is still symbolically better than what we actually got yeah it's like we are cleaning fucking house here And um, p- as side note this was your chance to clean fucking house and have Roman Polanski get killed
2: well also we have let's Say it, we have a white supremacist cult leader problem at the moment. Yeah. Let's not do a film where the white supremacist cult leader gets away scot-free.
1: With
0: his eyes like piss holes in the snow. Mm. Good casting for that actor, by the way. Well, Colin Firth. <laughs> I couldn't like work out eyes. who it was. It doesn't I, matter.
2: Yeah, okay, fair enough.
0: It was Damon Harriman, an actor who played Manson already in a TV show called Mindhunter. Not that I care, because I don't watch TV shows about... Murderers. So in terms of ranking Tarantino, I am really not a fan of Uh the Hateful Eight. It is a boring, nasty slog. And I hate Death Proof, even though it does have kind of a, a female empowerment bent at the end. It comes off to a lot of female disempowerment. Mm, you
2: pay fucking hard.
0: Once for you've it. done that thing with the bare leg and the window in a car, Tarantino, I'm never gonna be happy with you showing bare feet on a dashboard from some pretty girl who you got to stick her anus into the camera in her denim shorts, by the way. I was I muttered to Sharon, is she doing is Quentin doing a satire of how Michael Bay positioned Megan Fox?
2: If he's satirising anybody at this point, it almost seemed like he was satirising himself.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so those, those are the lesser Tarantinos. I hate this so much more. This is such a fucking obnoxious, slow-ass, kind of repulsive movie for me. I don't hate it with an intensity. It's a dull ache, like, like a headache you've had for days that just won't fucking go away. It is an ignoble film to be his ninth. Same as it was an ignoble film to be his eighth. And an ignoble film to be his fifth. He can do so much better than this. Jackie Brown, from 1998, 21 years ago, was downright mature. We'll do a show on it at some point. I just wanted to get all of the shit off my chest about Tarantino. (laughs) And the bit that made me laugh uh, um, on Bob Chipman's uh, video of uh, Did Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood Take Things Too Far? uh, Was... Regarding sensitivity on Inglorious Bastards, he was like, "I'm not sure whether I can tell this story. I'm not Jewish, uh, you know. Can we kill Hitler? Can we do all of these things?" He spoke to Eli Roth, and he's like, "Well, you're Jewish, Eli. Can you give me permission?" And Eli Roth said that that was fine.
2: Is it the okay? The director of Hostels
0: said it was fine to kill Hitler.
2: Is it okay if we kill Hitler? <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure. I'm wrecking my fucking brains to think of anybody in the world who would say, no, yeah. no, you can't kill Hitler, mate. That's sacred.
0: What? Wait a minute. If we kill Hitler, do we change the past? No. <laughs> no, Eli.
2: No filmmaking is that powerful. <laughs>
0: no, Eli. Do you want your juice box, Eli? <laughs> oh, good God. So yeah, and, and he spoke to uh, Sharon Tate's sister to uh, to get the sensitivity on this, and her sister was obviously very happy because effectively Sharon Tate is freed from just being a dead body, and all of the focus on her throughout this played very charmingly by Margot Robbie was of her just enjoying life and the you know whimsy of going to the uh, the, the cinema and enjoying the audience's reactions at her pratt falling and and doing kind of crappy movies because this was a crappy era for movies. Mm.
2: But but the intense melancholy at that final scene came
0: You're so You're supposed soon to be after.
2: happy. Well, I wasn't.
0: <laughs> Neither was I. I was still but it, reeling from disgust. But I was th- like, was it really fucking necessary... To flambe her as well.
2: It well exactly, and the fact that we were sat with an audience who thought that whole bash it. up the hippie scene was fucking hilarious—they were laughing their heads off.
0: They could not get enough of and it.
2: And then I'm—we're
0: in the minority. On sat this folks. there
2: getting all you know choked up over this poor girl, Sharon the Tate. real Sharon Tate.
0: Yeah, and understandably because it is like it's, it's like watching Princess Grace of Monaco. Stepping out of a car after an uneventful journey. Do you know, weirdly, (laughs) this is a horrible comparison, but I watched Jackass earlier today with uh, Lyra, the first movie, skipping over the really horrible ones. But she loved the one with the alligator. Mm -hmm. Um, Who doesn't? And the night pandas in Japan, even though they were disruptive. But at the very end, do you remember how it ends? After they've done the credits? It's O Fortuna, and then they all come out in old people makeup and they're walking along. It's O Fortuna, and they're like, they're using strollers and walkers. Explosions happen and they get taken out one by one. One of those old men is Ryan Dunn, who will never be an old man
2: Hmm.
0: because he died in 2011. And I got that same weird measure of melancholy there. (laughs) Only with Jackass, it was like, oh, you guys are sweet. Whereas with this, It felt like Tarantino taking someone else's story and rewriting it. And bear in mind, I've done quite a bit of that myself. There is a responsibility that comes with dealing with real life figures. But his Madonna whoring of women in this film borders on Frank Miller.
2: Yeah, I get what you mean.
0: You bitches deserve to not just die, but die in the worst way possible. And we will laugh at your death. Whereas this angel gets to live. Mm. As I said before, the biggest target for this film could have been Manson himself. Racist piece of shit monster that he was. An idiot, but a cunning one. It is very possible to be both. We see it on the news every day. All you gotta do is know how to manipulate people. Once you got those basics down, you can be king. White supremacist. Fuck this guy. Instead you just killed three of his acolytes. Three boobs. Three morons. You changed history and you didn't even know you changed history.
1: I just
0: want to talk about Bruce Lee one lot more time here. Because um, I, ver- I, I, I was getting this very sharp feeling while I was watching it. And it was, it was what I'd anticipated after seeing the trailer. Uh, we'll do this by way of an exercise. And you can join in at home, folks. Up till 1997, uh, where after 20 years of working in the uh, Hong Kong film industry, Jackie Chan finally made his way into American cinema with Rush Hour, uh, directed by Brett Ratner, a white guy of ill repute. Can you tell me, can you list for me, a complete rundown of Asian megastars in your own time?
2: Before 1997?
0: Yeah. International, like, like headliner film, superstars. Not just in a film.
2: And Keanu Reeves doesn't count.
0: Uh, No, well, he's... Technically, you could probably say technically Keanu Reeves. Although, I don't think he was hired because he was Asian. In fact, I don't think many people know he is of Asian descent.
2: Chinese heritage at that point was not exactly played up.
0: He was Hawaiian to most people. Mm. With a name like Keanu, anyway. I'm
2: trying to visualise, like, the smash hits magazines and the like that I used to read when I was a teenager and think if there was anybody in those...
0: Jet Li was also about to break his way in with Romeo Must Die and The One, after many, many years of being in Asian cinema. He got his big break in uh, Lethal Weapon 4, which included a throwaway line from disgraced fuckwit Mel Gibson, Enter the Drag Queen. You could also say Pat Morita, although his work outside the Karate Kid films wasn't exactly extensive, certainly not enough for him to be considered a megastar. By and large, since 1997, most of the people who become international Asian megastars tend to be on the martial arts side, like Michelle Yeoh. Some films that she's in don't require her to do martial arts, like Memoirs of a Geisha. But she is an incredibly accomplished martial artist, which is what got her noticed. i got high hopes for Henry Golding and Constance Wu and Gemma Chan, of course. Although there's a certain irony in Henry Golding, this statuesque, Gorgeous, incredibly charismatic, handsome Asian man with a voice like melted chocolate. An Asian man who was able to prove himself without this weirdly specific prerequisite of having martial arts skills. Being given his first major sci-fi action break in Hollywood with the recent casting of Snake Eyes. A mute ninja who always has his whole face and body covered. I think we need a character rewrite. But that's now. I'm talking about... Pre-1997, any time in the 20th century before then. Have a think. Cast your mind back across all those decades. The answer is there's none. There's Bruce Lee. He was in Enter the Dragon, and that was it. Then he died. He, was, he died, in fact, before he was in Enter the Dragon. He was Brandon
2: in... was trying.
0: Yeah, Brandon was trying, and then he died. He failed to become a megastar after the film that would have made him a megastar, The Crow, was released just after his death. Here's my point. Tarantino hero worships figures from that era. Do you remember in Django Unchained? He got the actual Franco Nero from the original Django, Mm -hmm. the original Django, to turn up as one of Candy's friends, a slave trader. Uh, So, yeah, great cameo there. He, He sidles up to Django at the bar and says... How do you spell that? The D is silent. And it's this kind of, yeah, he turned up. And remember the, the hero worship of Pamela Greer in Jackie Brown. He was so thrilled to get Pam Greer from exploitation films. And then there's uh, David Carradine in um, Kill Bill, star of uh, Kung Fu. There's there's multiple questions here. One of them is, how integral to this movie is this fight scene with Bruce Lee? How important is it that Tarantino took away from Asia its one star up until 1997 with Jackie Chan.
2: And said, oh, I want and said
0: oh, he's kind of a dick, he's not all that. How important that his white guy cowboy could beat up Bruce Lee?
2: And I get the argument that he's, he's honouring him as a human being rather than as the legend.
0: We know that he's honouring him as a human being because he's only in that one scene where he acts like a dick. That's how much he's honouring him like a human being. It's a pathetic argument, folks. Don't make it to me. Uh, they made him a laughing stock. Do you remember what the uh, audience were doing in the cinema while it
1: was...
0: (laughs) He sounded like every wanker in the playground who was like, oh, you know karate, do you? He sounded like everyone has parodied Bruce Lee since Bruce Lee actually did that totally straight. Like Bruce came along and went... It's kind of a way of freaking out your opponent. And so as a result, that became like mimetically like a parody of kung fu. Like it was like, oh, you're Mohammed, I'm Bruce Lee, are you? It's that It's every time I ever heard that in the playground connected to martial arts and these fucking dickwads are laughing at it in the cinema going Haha, Bruce Lee is doing his whoa like that it wasn't done in a, man, this guy's so fucking cool. The way the fight is positioned, the first uh, hit he gets in, he basically punks the cowboy, who sort of, like, takes the hit and gets him and goes, oh, yeah, that was, that was pretty good. And then Bruce Lee's like, well, okay, I'm going to get you next. You don't even see what the cowboy does. He just slams him into a car. And Bruce Lee's like, whoa, did not expect that, which suggests that he's not that good a fighter. And then it doesn't get to resolve. So the, it is left hanging. How important was that? And the message that it sends is this guy, Brad Pitt, is so hard so that at the end of the movie, he can beat hippies to death. He can beat hippies to death. Tarantino took the fight scene from Way of the Dragon where Bruce Lee fights Chuck Norris and goes, but what if Chuck won? Well done, Quentin. You've achieved every white boy's fantasy of beating Bruce Lee through this avatar. How fucking fragile does your white male ego have to be that you can't allow Asia to have one star? You gotta take it back for Chuck. And in this period, if you remember the um, Bruce Lee the Dragon, the Dragon the Bruce Lee story, which is a film by Rob Cohen and it's from a book written in like 1980 by Linda Lee, so it's obviously heavily suspect. There's things like um, when he gets his back broken after fighting Johnny son, which was a pseudonym for a real guy, that actually didn't happen. So it's a suspect film. Like it's not it is not to be taken as gospel.
2: It's a fictionalized account, yeah. much like Rocketman.
0: Having said that, the fictionalized account does still mostly follow real events. The guy who was Johnny son in the film was a real-life guy named Wong Jack Man. There's some dispute as to who won that fight, but Lee was granted permission to teach non-Chinese people as a result. He did get a ruptured disc in his back at some point in an unconnected fashion. They just kind of blended those together. So the 1993 film takes liberties with the pieces they were given. Unlike this, which is an alternate history starring Quentin Tarantino's fictional characters in the playground, of 1969 Hollywood. There's another thing about Dragon the Bruce Lee story though. Do you remember he goes to see um, Breakfast at Tiffany's uh, at the beginning with Linda mm-hmm. and they're uh, sitting there and the whole audience is laughing at Mickey Rooney doing a Japanese impression as um, Mr. Yunioshi. Google images it for a yikes moment and it's like the you know teeth and the eyes are going oh, oh, oh and it's fucking bone chilling and the whole audience is guffawing ha, 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 and linda's even laughing and then it cuts to bruce cuz they're on their first date and he's just glaring up at the screen like this is how my people are being portrayed in american cinema being played by a white man in yellow face it's
1: more like i wrote this keep ringing my bell you disturb me you must have a key made you do not do any good i just use the law you like me you know you do on, baby! wait a minute what is this you like me i'm a liked guy in 30 seconds i got to call the police i got to get to my rest i'm an artist let's get out of here don't be angry you dear little man i won't do it again Promise
0: not to be angry, I might let you take those pictures we mentioned. Tonight we went full circle, and I was sat there watching people laughing at a Asian man playing Bruce a caricature of Bruce Lee, going, haaa. This during this period, they very specifically point out there on the set of the Green Hornet, where Rick is playing a villain. In Green Hornet, Bruce Lee played Cato, the actual talent, playing second fiddle to a buffoon. There was a rubbish remake uh, a few uh, years ago, directed by Michel Gondry, which could have been so much more if the guy they'd gotten to play Cato had actually had personality, and if he and Seth Rogen had had a rapport. Instead, he comes off as kind of a dick. Which adds a further nail to this coffin. Yeah, ultimately, it was like, we finally let an Asian man on, on TV. But he has to be playing the manservant. The disparaging way which Cliff refers to him as... He's like, I didn't hear you, Kato. I'm reminded of Inspector Clouseau. Kato, where would he spring from next? Where they deliberately positioned his Asian sidekick character as a screaming stereotype. Why can't we go back to the 1960s when everything was racist as fuck and nobody complained? Civil rights, nobody complained. But this was also around about the time that uh, Bruce Lee was working with a guy played by Robert Wagner in uh, in Drag of the Bruce Lee story, Bill Krieger, who's a composite of various producers that they worked with over the years, where they were developing a TV show which Bruce Lee would star in uh, so that he wouldn't be playing second fiddle to a a white guy, and uh, he would bring Kung Fu to the American West. It was called Kung Fu. And then they recast him at the last minute with a white guy named David Carradine who went on to be hero-worshipped in Kill Bill. He is an anti-hero-worship but there is no question of the respect afforded David Carradine in Kill Bill. He gets maybe one of the best on-screen deaths I've ever seen. One of the most dignified and fascinating. Multi-textured. It's the way most actors would like to go out as opposed to the way Carradine actually went out with the old asphyxie wank in the closet. But relative to the way the real-life Bruce Lee is portrayed here, David Carradine is positioned as this emperor pimp, the substitute for Bruce Lee. And yet, you look back on this fucking era, you cannot move for the amount of white people in movies. (laughs) that Tarantino will worship. He's got to find the one Asian guy and take him down a few pegs just to take the sheen off of that hero-worship, untouchable man. What the world needs is a new version of Dragon the Bruce Lee story or a new film that, in, that looks at Bruce Lee in a different way but with modern sensibilities. and Or exactly what this is, a new film that incorporates Bruce Lee as an actual person in the film, but it's not about a white guy beating him up and being harder than Bruce Lee. If that scene had gone differently and it had been a different scenario and the cited within the scene, Cassius Clay, later to be Muhammad Ali, turned up and he and Cliff had a fight which Cliff clearly would have won. And if Clay, Ali, had been positioned as... Truculent, but in a not particularly charming way. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Dude. And a showboat, but actually not having that much to back up his words. And if we could pretend that heavyweight boxing was then and is now dominated by white people, leaving Clay as the only black boxer of note for many decades just to make Cliff look good, to get Cliff over, because that's what this wrestling shit is, I think the African-American community could be justifiably up in arms.
2: It's It was really weird for me because I remember reading something years ago when they first started doing motion capture and performance capture. Yeah. And somebody wrote something I can't cite it because I can't for the life of me remember where I read it, but somebody wrote something about what's next. Are they going to be electronically recreating actors who are dead and making them perform? And Bruce Lee was the example mm. that they used.
0: No, it's the other way around. You'll uh, get a guy to do an impersonation of Bruce Lee and you'll put Leo DiCaprio in The Great Escape. Mm. The other, other poignant scenario we have to hand here is that... Uh, This film is about Sharon Tate and the uh, the days and months leading up to her untimely, horrible and tragic death. And she is effectively, she's humanised, but in a kind of beatific way. Like she's this you know wonderful girl, this lovely girl who it's just such a terrible thing that she's uh, uh, going to die, and then she doesn't. Bruce Lee was just a few years off of dying suddenly and tragically before the release event of The Dragon. No hero worship there. It's the opposite. It's uh, turning him into a bit of a tit in the eyes of the general public until something redresses that balance. Frankly, it is a shameful decision to implement this scenario into this film in this way. I'm disgusted with Quentin Tarantino right now. It's going to take a lot. I muttered to you after that scene, Quentin Tarantino is now in a hole and one meter below him is China. That was how far down he was after that scene, and he never clawed his way out. And I keep coming back to this confusing, unclear, alternate history that he's diverging us into by the end of the film. We don't know from the text what his intentions are, but what seems to be indisputable is the removal of one particular sobering, maturing moment for American society. If we could genuinely go back and change that, that's a different matter. Yeah, if I could go back in time and divert the death of Princess Diana and save her, I would do that, principally to save a woman and her paramour, but more importantly, because news around that time, 1997, was just about to explode into this mutated beast run by the Murdoch papers, into this repulsive... Vox Pop's sensationalism machine. And Princess Diana's untimely death was the perfect story to keep perpetuating that and the disappearance of a uh, young British child named Madeleine McCann. Because we are fixated, fixated as a society on dead white girls. And frankly, we need to look at that.
2: It's to do with the representation of what we perceive as innocence. And... I think you're right, we maybe need to do some examination of what we perceive innocence to look like.
0: At the moment, innocence that we lament the most is a white girl taken before her time, or a fetus. Meanwhile, we got little brown children in cages. And the main argument at the time that this really hit the public eye was, well, it's not a cage per se, it's more of a pen area. The more concerned we are with the lives and welfares of people who don't look like us, the fewer footholds fascism has. So for that reason and many others, that image of innocence lost needs some fucking diversification. And since we can't change history, what we can do with our entertainment, with our thought-provoking work, is to lend people perspective Quentin did a film on the slave trade and how we must oppose it. Quentin did a film on World War II Nazis and how we had to oppose them. This could have been the third in that trilogy. All three of which would draw parallels with the contemporary situations we face now, and in 50 years' time, probably the horrendous situations we'll still be facing. They will always try to come back. That's why this message is there to be refreshed. Oppose white supremacists. And Spike Lee, who did not like Django Unchained, made exactly that movie with Black Klansmen. But Quentin didn't seem to want to concern himself this time. He seemed far more interested in the specifics of how you could save one woman by smashing the nose in of another, then having a dog rip her face off, then having her set on fire, all the while screaming for our enjoyment. <sighs> After this show wrapped, I got together with Maya Santandrea and Debbie Morse to discuss many other aspects of this movie. It was supposed to be just a quick overview of why it's gotten so much critical praise, but it ended up spilling into nearly an hour's worth of accompanying chat, which will be hitting the Patreon feed for everyone who slides us five bucks a month in support of the School of Movies, as part of their ongoing package of quality bonus entertainment is a clip
1: because cliff could have performed perfectly he could have made rick and randy look great but the nicest person to janet made the director like oh my god that was amazing that looked great we love it randy would just come up with some other reason why he should never hire cliff again and then pass that on to the rest of his coordinator friends and then whatever that new excuse becomes is the reasons why cliff can't get any work it was it was beautiful i i think that is the most human female character tarantino's ever written because she just feels like a girl and who could have made it big and but but very much a person fair fine fair enough if you still want to shoot on 35 millimeter however you have to then understand and maybe tarantino is totally okay with this but the vast majority of your audiences are going to see your work of art in the worst possible way because most multiplexes have switched over to completely digital projectors. And so if you try to show the 35mm film with a digital projector, the focus is going to be off the entire time. My boyfriend's brother kind of leaned over us to one point and he was like, who the heck is that? Like, Who is this person? What is this supposed to be? Am I supposed to understand that reference? He did not know who Roman Polanski was, he didn't know who Sharon Tate was, he didn't know who Charles Manson was, didn't know who any of these people in the Manson family were. Like, if you don't have, if you don't have the knowledge about this very specific time in Hollywood's history, you're gonna be kinda lost in, in some of the nitty gritty of what happens in the story.
0: If you had a film set in Sarajevo in 1914 and uh, one of the characters is called Gavrilo Princip, and then, near the end of the movie, uh, the Archduke of uh, Austro-Hungary, mm. Franz Ferdinand, and mm-hmm. his wife go past in a car. But Gavrilo is having the shit kicked out of him, and he's being curb-stomped in an alley nearby. And it's horrific. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, so what was all that about? And then it carries on. Effectively, World War I was just averted. But yeah, we don't exactly. fucking know that! <laughs> And just time to thank our $15 patrons who get sponsor credit every episode. So here's to you, Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasko, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Geseager, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck. Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lux, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dachler, and Lorraine Chisholm. So, uh, yeah, this was uh, not so much a disappointment, because as soon as I found out about the fucking concept i was like oh no no not the manson family murders honestly the worst i thought it could be would be weirdly salacious fixation on the death of this
1: Mm.
0: black dahlia you know uh so not quite the worst thing i could possibly imagine but close close And now we've finally gotten around to it. We will do a full show soon enough, folks, on Bad Times at the El Royale, which I showed Sharon just the other day on Blu-ray. And is magnificent. It is also about the Manson murders, although it's one step removed for a fictionalized version of this guy. Yes. And it has that. Jackie Brown level of maturity and dignity, whilst at the same time having insane levels of tension and memorable dialogue and astonishing performances. Kick-ass fucking soundtrack. It is better Tarantino than Tarantino has done since Django. Quite
2: some time, yeah. And one thing I said to you when we walked out the cinema was that watching this was like... Pulling teeth? No, no, no. As a kid, having been a massive, massive Stephen King fan... (laughs) Then having no new material to read from him for quite a while, and then really looking forward to his next novel coming out and its dreamcatcher.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so this was Tarantino's butt slugs. Yes. Okay. Yes, I think so. On that bombshell. Gonna leave you with Aretha Franklin and the house that Jack built. And this has reminded me, uh, I wasn't overly enamored of the soundtrack and none of it really stuck out apart from uh, Hush by Deep Purple, which was in Bad Times at the L.Y.L. And it felt like, come on, Quentin, you can think of one other song that could have played over that scene instead. And now that I think about it, 1230 by the Mamas and the Papas was in Bad Times as well. And that was the one when they were crawling up CeeLo Drive in that shitty old car fucking hell. One thing I liked was the authenticity of all of those commercials from the era playing on the radio in the car. Which was what made me feel like it was Grand Theft Auto Hollywood.
1: The vagabond attention now, the vagabond class of 1958 of University High will hold a reunion June 22nd. Oh, but you'll get to look at everybody's uh, hair thinning and see if uh, if Jane really was a victim of baby fat. We'll find out for sure now. For information and reservations, you phone 478-2370.
0: I think there is something in, in what you say, Sharon, about uh, Tarantino parodying himself because this feels like it was inspired by things that were inspired by Tarantino movies. And not in that crass mid-90s way of just playing Missaloo by Dick Dale and the Deltones, while dudes in suits with guns and sunglasses walk around the place holding briefcases. That's just the most superficial reading of Tarantino for his earliest phase. No, I mean this was in a more textured, atmospheric way. Have a dream of a huge, luscious, creamy root beer float? Well, if you haven't tried one with mug root beer, start drooling now, mug old-fashioned root beer in the new twist-top bottle. Which isn't terrible. But when I try to think of a strong part of this film, all I can think of is Margot Robbie smiling. And that's all her. You know, Wolf of Wall Street, The Big Short, Suicide Squad. Yeah, I compared those three. She seems to have made a habit of being my favourite thing in a movie that everyone else loves and I really don't like. So it will be wonderful to see her in a movie that I do like. So Kathy Yan, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn... Over to you.
1: This is a house that Jack built your remember this out.
0: You know your homework, folks. Bad times at the El Royale. And uh I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've
2: been Sharon Sure.
0: And school's, school's out.
2: was filled with love.
1: It was a love that I